Hello, welcome to another episode of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. This week's guest is Tony Baldrick Robinson. Very exciting. He's doing Movember this month, so check out the links in the in all the blurbs, and you can go and sponsor him if you like. It's for a fantastic cause. Also, my new DVD, Happy Now, is out today. Uh, the it's going. You can get it from GoFasterStripe.com. Um, it's got lots of extras, plus the show of my last tour, including stuff about the birth of my baby and me wanting to have sex with sex robots. Uh, it's full of fun. Uh, so if you order on the first day, 14th of November, you can be entered into a draw where you could win the grandchildren spoilt here doormat, the very one that I use in the show. That could be yours. So go to www.gofasterstripe.com. Uh, while you're there, check out all the other stuff they're doing and their sale they've got on uh, the Fist of Fun stuff they've got there. One won't be on there for very much longer as we lose the rights. So go and buy it now. Let's sit back and enjoy Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast with Tony Robinson. Goodbye. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who is now obsessed with Brian Blessed. It's Richard Herring. <laughs> How are you doing? Where's the lady from the... She's gone as well. Fucking hell, what's happened? Everyone's walking out on me. So it's a brand new audience, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Welcome to... Uh, welcome to Rich James Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I was uh, talking to H from Steps. Uh, do, you know what the, do you know what H... The H stood for? No, it wasn't that. It was hyperactive. So it's... He calls it Rahalastopus, I don't know, and he's, he's obsessed with shortening things to just their letter form, though, that's his, that's his problem. Uh, so, uh, uh, it's, it's lovely, a lovely audience we've got here, might, uh, might let's see, but there's a lot of bearded men, as usual, it's, uh, I don't mind that, I'm not prejudiced, because, you know, in a way, I am one, so uh, that would be weird to be prejudiced. Some fine, yeah, I've got, you've got a little, is there a little one? Yeah, there is, it's like, sort of Noel Edmonds hiding underneath the chin. <laughs> Like a young Noel Edmonds there, sir. What's, what's your name? Joe. Joe, that's a lovely name. And what, uh, what do you do for a living? Um, I'm like a sub-editor. Oh, you, yeah. So you edit um, a submarine, submarine magazines? What's that? What's, who's, is he your editor? No. no. <laughs> that's insulting, isn't it? That is, you could be in a, look, he looks like he could be an editor. Look, he's got glasses. No, what do you do? You're a financial consultant. So you just ask people, say, what should I do with my money? And you go, give it to me. Give a percentage of it to me, and then do this with the rest of it. You make me sick. Uh, so uh, what, what, what magazines, what do you work on as an ed? Nothing of any interest. No, it is of interest to me. Don't put yourself down, Joe. I'm very interested in you. Is it? Uh, it's like B2B sponsorship marketing. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, I asked that. And uh, Rasputin on the end. There's always a Rasputin figure in there. And always with a beautiful lady, so that proves the power of the Rasputin. Uh, look, what's your name, sir? Adam. Adam. Hello, Adam. And uh, what do you do when you're not being as Bengali for a royal family? You're a designer. You're from Wales. Yeah. I thought you were just. I thought there was something wrong with you when you said Adam. <laughs> I thought oh, he said Adam in a really weird way. I better, be, I better go easy on him. It just turns out he's Welsh. <laughs> I can do what I like. Uh, so, uh, you're a designer? Yeah. Yeah, what, what, what have you designed? Did you design that t-shirt? It's not that good. No, no good. It's no. Not really, that's not very really good. <laughs> you design newspaper? Get together with this guy. He does, what was it again that you were, the, what's? B2B. B2B. A B to B. Is it like, uh, like bees that fly around? There's some newspaper for bees. 
that they go send to other because they're all in their own hive aren't they so how do they know what's going on with it is that it they don't know what's going on the other hives they have you go between the bees his main is bzzz. yeah and what's the buzz this week Okay, I think we'll crack on, because we've got a good guest. What am I doing wasting my time out here? So, uh, it's, uh, thank you for coming, everyone. Love to see you. Uh, my, my guest this week, you're much better than last week's audience, uh, is probably best known as Titch from Big Jim and the Figaro Club. <laughs> That's why we're all here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Sir? Oh, yeah. We've got a Sir on. Proper, he's a knight. Tony Robinson, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Tony Robinson, do you insist on this, on the sir? That's what that's what I want to know. Yeah, so it was funny actually because when I was. When I first knew... Oh, pick up your microphone, because well, we need to talk into this. I didn't understand. That's all right, I didn't tell Should you. Should we start again? Yeah. Well, when I first knew that I was going to be nice, it's all like it's all a big secret, but I thought it was such a weird and wonderful thing that I thought I'll never be able to stop thinking about it. <laughs> and, in fact, I, well, I couldn't share it with anyone else other than my wife, um, uh, but we wanted to talk about it to each other all the time. So if ever there was anybody else around, we'd do this tiny little sign... To each other, where we would just just circle. This is a terrible story for <laughs> something which is essentially sound. Is it? No there is some vision but as well. We, we we would just go like that, circle with our fingers, just do a little prod, like like a knight fighting somebody, <laughs> a tiny tiny. But we would do it terribly discreetly, just to say to each other, "Isn't it amazing? I'm going to get a knighthood." But like within three months, you just forget about it completely. And the, whenever anyone says "sir," like in a restaurant or something, you just think they're being ludicrously obsequious and and, and just get on with your tea. Well, I had, I've got a story about when you when I found out you were a knight. Yeah. I found out in a kind of weird way. Because I was coming, I was driving back from a gig, or it was a kind of disturbing experience. I was driving back from a gig, and the news came on, and the first news story was, and, and, the, and the woman reading the, the news story went, Tony Robinson, who played Baldrick on Blackadder. <laughs> and I was going, oh, God, no, he's, that, it can't be this, this can't, this is terrible. I was really genuinely upset. And then he said, and Adele. And I went, <laughs> What has what Tony Robinson been doing with Adele and they both died doing it? What is, I was generally going, fuck, what the, it's been some kind of coach crash. I've got awards. They said it and they did it like a joke. It wasn't deliberate, but it was just like a really horrific. So I thought you were dead for a, for a couple of seconds. And then yeah. it was, I was glad to find out you were, in fact, a knight instead. But that's... You've never even met me. You wouldn't have cared. But either way, it was just an interesting news story. Wasn't it? Well, no, it's just, you know, it's a horrible shock to surprise, isn't it? To someone just to go like that. When you might expect it's happened a lot this year. Uh, but, uh, oh, Jimmy Young died tonight. Most people here will oh, never no, have heard he? of Jimmy Young, but he was 95 and he used to sing Unchained Melody That's when right, I was yeah. in, in, in my early teens. That, oh. oh, my love, my darling, I've hungered for your touch. Oh, it was wonderful. And he's yeah, dead. Now you've broken that time. I didn't know about that, so thanks a lot. That is, <laughs> at least I've got a story about that. If. Uh, <laughs> How I found out Jimmy Young died. <laughs> Sir Tony Robinson sang Unchained Maladies. 
Oh, that's very that's sad. But he had a good knock, didn't he? Yeah, you can't you can't be overwhelmingly sad when someone's ninety five and dies. No. But it's just it's like saying goodbye to all those memories, isn't yeah. it? That's what's so sad about oh. that kind of thing. So, um, well, there's loads to talk to you about. It's insane. Your, your, your book is out, uh, which is called No Cunning Plan. Where did yeah. I get that title from? I don't okay. know. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've just got it today, uh, but I have read quite a lot of it, and I'm, I think it's a very interesting read. I, I'm, I'm fa- as I was saying to you backstage, I'm fascinated by um, that kind of leapfrogging uh, between the generations, which you get in everything, but I think especially in dra- in, in theatre and yeah, things, that you'll yeah. find out someone's work. I found that Harry Shearer had worked with Abbott and Costello, which seemed impossible. Uh, and yeah, you you were well, you were in the original stage version of Oliver, the the first time it was done. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's pretty incredible for a for a starter. <laughs> and and the man who played Mr. Sowerby, the Undertaker, yeah. who was like he he was this hippie with really greasy hair and he was probably only about 26 but he looked like this really old man to me and he got a strange voice like a bird and he was so scary and it was Barry Humphreys it was the first job he ever did over here so it's amazing those things are amazing and, and Lionel Bart you, you write about in the book about me about meeting Lionel Bart who obviously wrote Oliver uh, and is this you know very affluent perfumed man as you say yeah yeah he was the first man that i ever met who smelt of perfume perfume was something which was essentially about women men smelt of fags or sweat that was the way the world worked <laughs> and suddenly there was this man who you could smell from two or three yards yeah. and it was so exotic and he had i mean you made a load of money written for cliff richard and, Huge and amounts, obviously yeah. the, 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 the uh, oliver did pretty well for him as well but then he lost because I, I met lionel bart or i saw lionel bart when i lived in acton in the early 1990s he lived above the uh, odd bins in a little flat yeah. and his whole you know but it's you're writing about him having all this you know generosity and money and then that's the, the other end of his career is this you know he did get some money didn't he Cameron Mac- Macintosh gave him some money towards the end that's right he didn't it, have any of the rights he'd, lo- he'd sold the rights to Oliver right? that, yes he sold uh, when he was really uh, uh, up against it he sold the rights for very very cheap but he had this weird kind of wealth the sort of James Bond type of wealth yeah. where it said I don't know whether it's true or not but he had this this uh, this house in Kensington with 20 bedrooms and every night was party night and, and he would <laughs> they, they would pass around a sil- two silver salvers one which was covered in drugs and the other which was covered in money and you could just take what you wanted <laughs> right. it didn't take him all that long to become bankrupt no. <laughs> <laughs> do you think how many of you did that I mean, it's sort of interesting isn't it to live that kind of lifestyle to have that money and, and blow it all out your ass basically it's what yeah, you want but there's, a, there's a lovely kind of innocence about yeah, it yeah. isn't there it's, it's, it's like this money is just going to go on forever yeah, and ever yeah. because people are giving me money and they, they constantly will it's yeah. really sweet and the fact that uh, uh, another example of what you were saying about history that uh, Cameron Macintosh bailed him out Cameron when I was at the Central School of Speech and Drama he was on the stage management course oh, was he? Yeah, and he was this geeky kid with this knitted home knitted jumper that with the elbows out and yeah. whenever anything went wrong we'd go oh, go, oh Cameron you're so <laughs> silly and, and then he became this hugely wealthy man yeah and you're, you're also like early on I mean, you were a child actor as well yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so you work with uh, Judy Garland or you're in a film with Judy Garland and a film with John Wayne. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, that, see, that just seems like impossible to me that, <laughs> that, that one degree of separation between you and John Wayne. Yeah, that, I, I, was, I was probably in my early 20s right. by the time that I did the, the, the film with John Wayne. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
it, it, was, it was a film called Brannigan, and basically the idea was that he was an American copper who'd come over to England to extradite uh, some mafia man back right. to America, and so he had to deal with the English police. The, the English policeman was, was Dickie Attenborough. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, and I was, I was the red herring. They, they needed a motorbike man, uh, messenger who could, uh, they, they could follow all over London, and the Hollywood idea of going, uh, following somebody through London was that for you, you passed Trafalgar Square, and then you've <laughs> passed Tower Bridge, and then you passed Buckingham Palace. You know, you'd have to be a real rip-off cab driver to take anybody that way, but it was good to, to show the Americans all these views. Yeah. And, and, and I went up for the part, and I was living in Bristol, and I went up on my motorbike to Shepperton, and the producer actually thought I was a, motor, a real motorbike messenger. Right. And, and it just took me ages to explain to him that I was an actor there for the part of a motorbike messenger. And <laughs> he was so thrilled by this serendipity that he gave me the part without even... <laughs> You know, making me read any of the scripts at all. And so I found myself... Well, I was sharing a Winnebago with, with Richard Attenborough and right. loads of talks with, with Wayne. It was odd because I was like uh, on anti-Vietnam War demos and there was I was right next to John Wayne thinking, tee hee hee, you don't know what I've been doing, you right-wing <laughs> bastard. <laughs> so, uh, well... There's loads of things. I mean, there are lots of people who ask me to talk about all sorts of things, and they're not necessarily the things that, that you might jump to mind. I, I first became, I think, the first time I saw you, I think, that I remember, was in Who Dares Wins, which was like a big influence on me when I was growing up as a, one of the kind of... It was Channel 4, wasn't it? That's it was right, the, yeah. One of the yeah. first sort of Channel 4 yeah. sort of team comedy shows with Rory McGrath and uh, Jimmy Mulville. That's right. And yeah. uh, Julia Hills. Yes. So I was, it was, it, essentially, it was the people who went on to create Hattrick Productions. Yeah. All except me. <laughs> <laughs> but you were too good. You were the best one in it. And the, others, oh. the others weren't good enough to carry <laughs> That's right. They just had to go and make millions yeah. of pounds. I'll tell you a story. <laughs> yeah. It's traduced themselves, cheapening their talents. Um, uh, when Who, Who Dares Wins ran for about uh, four series and it was, it was by far the dirtiest thing on, on television and we did an Emperor's New Clothes sketch uh, where essentially it was written by Jimmy and Rory um, and they were selling me a suit except there was no sort, suit at all I was actually naked um, and we did it on telly and, and I had a little jock strap on which was velcroed onto my pubic hair but um, yeah, and I watched today and you've got a fine bush of pubic hair Thank you, you very do, much. You do see a lot yeah, of I can, I can, I can hold my Velcro. <laughs> <laughs> but you couldn't see that I wasn't naked because it was one of those artful things where there was always someone's head in the way or a prop or something like that. But then we went out on tour and did a sort of farewell Who Dares Wins tour. And I actually did do it naked on the stage. Although when we were doing the sketch, I had my hand over my crutch. But then I would whip round to the front of the theatre and then I would walk down through the, the centre of the stalls, start bollock naked without my hands over my crutch, looking for my clothes as though Jimmy and Rory had, had hidden them. And that, you know, given my figure, it got quite a good laughter, really. Um, but anyway, um, it was okay until we got to Lincoln, and, we, and it was at a cinema, the Ritz Cinema, which didn't have one of those little corridors from the stage right round to the back of the, um, the stalls. Um, so when I got off stage, uh, the stage manager 
gave me a dressing gown and slippers and I ran through the car park uh, <laughs> and then I quickly threw the dressing gown and the slippers back to, to the stage manager who had to piss back to the prompt corner because he'd got an elect, uh, a queue to give and then I pushed the door to go in and make my entrance and I'm in the car park pushing on this door which won't open. <laughs> And so uh, I race round to the next door and push on that, and that won't open either. I go back to the stage door, stark bollock naked. That is a fire door too. That won't open. I go three quarters of the way round the whole cinema and realise that eventually I'm going to have to walk into the street without my clothes on and, and just go in through the front, which I eventually did and there were two there were two program sellers counting the, the, the money for the programs as I went in and I just said evening and just walked <laughs> <laughs> boldly boldly past them and, and into the stores by which time the sketch that I was supposed to be in was completely over but, but it didn't matter you know anyone nude walking through yeah. uh, is, is going to get a laugh anyway well in the original TV show you just kept on walking around naked you didn't know the sketch was over I think is that right so kind of Yes, it did, but once again, I always had my hands on my... But, but, but people who'd seen it on the telly thought they'd seen my dick. On TV. Even though my, uh, they hadn't. That's really weird, isn't it? <laughs> they just wanted to so much. It was... Uh, uh, and, uh, well, a lot of people uh, wanted to know about um, uh, Tales from Fat Tulip's Garden. This is, this is more than anything. That was the thing that people were tweeting about. Well, that's lovely that they that they should have done that. This was a, a kids series that I made round about the time of the the first Black Adder. So I I was well known enough to get into the office door to discuss uh, projects with with senior producers. But uh, uh, you know, it gave me th it gave me thirty seconds, which I hadn't had a few years previously. Um, and I had this idea of of a. a this garden, like the ones that I used to play in with a child, but that was peopled by crazy animals and crazy, crazy plants and flowers like Fat Tulip. And I never actually specified whether Fat Tulip was a person or an animal or what. And it was semi-improvised and uh, semi-scripted. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, but there were, I remember th there was a, we shot some of them in South End and there was this little cockle uh, who I called Jim Morrison. And, and, and my favourite line, one of the stories ended, and all that Fat Tulip was, could hear was a meep, meep, meep noise, which was the sound of Jim Morrison crying for his mummy. <laughs> <laughs> but weirdly, and this is such an odd coincidence, the house that the guy who was uh, finding all the sets for us discovered was a house that I used to play in as a child. What's the odds wow. of that? And after the show was over and people got very romantic about it because, you know, a lot of people watched it when they were 11, 12, 13. 16-year-olds yeah. would say to me, cool, I love that show on children's television. I used to go home, spliff up and watch it. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, the house burnt down. Right. And even now, to this day, in Woodford Green, there is this, this ghastly shape of this huge burnt-out house and this garden which is now covered in weeds and you can hardly get into it, and it's Fat Tulip's garden. Oh, no. Terrible. Night of terrible sadness. Uh, and oh, and I, I wanted to talk about Maid Marian and her uh, Merry Men, which, again, I think would be a 
popular choice, which was an amazing show. And I was, I watched this, but I was, an, I must have been an adult by the time that was on. But it was a very funny show. It's in, in a way, in that tradition of kids TV that is, you know, tis was and is, is good enough for, you know, that the adults will enjoy as well. Yeah, well, I, when I started writing it, I'd got two young kids and my daughter was about nine or ten at that time. And when she brought her friends home with her, they liked watching The Adder and The Young Ones and Dawn and Jennifer, who yeah. had just got their first show on by then, and Lenny Henry. They loved watching them far more than they liked watching children's television. Um, and it occurred to me that if you could create a show that was like those shows, but without the bum and tits gags yeah. in there, then you ought to be able to make something that kids felt was written for them rather than written at them. Yeah, and that's yeah. how I felt when I saw an awful lot of children's television. I'd never thought that in the 50s, but by the late 60s and 70s, there seemed to be this really patronising feel about uh, uh, an awful lot of children's television, sure. which I really wanted to get rid of. And my daughter was very much of a tomboy. And when she was, she was tiny, and when she was... In her last year at primary school, she managed to boss herself into being in, in the school football team by sheer force of her personality. And she was rubbish at football. <laughs> but she, she was like one of the twin strikers and she would hurtle around chasing the ball and all the rest of the, the, the team would be chasing her like a swarm of tiny bees. And she would be berating them about how incompetent they were. And... Uh, uh, and w w but whenever she got the ball, it would just bounce off her and bounce <laughs> away again. And I thought, blimey, if Laura had been around when Robin Hood was around, it certainly wouldn't have been him that was running the gang. Yeah, yeah. And it was just that one thought was that, you know, they always say, don't they, that you've got to have a one-line pitch if you want to get a movie. And it was that real, yeah. it was that one line that really got us, um, made Marion and, and her merry men, that she was running the gang, Robin was just this, this vain idiot. And no one ever in, intervened with us. No, um, there was just the director and me, and um, although all of it was for children and, and all, every line had to have a message that was directed for children, of course there was a bit of me, just as there are bits of Roald Dahl and Joan Aitken and all the great children's writers, which, which is an adult and can't resist saying things. That yeah. So, I mean, there were lines in it like, um, uh, I can remember Maid Marian said, men... They promise you the world and you end up flat on your back servicing their muck spreader. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a deeply political <laughs> line for young girls, yeah. but it also had a, a, other reflections in it for, for older people. But that's a lot. I mean, it's great. It's a little bit ahead of its time as well, maybe, in, the, in, in, changing, in switching that around, the, the gender thing. And it's a, it's a lovely idea that, that Maid Marian would be in, in charge and... And, you know, and just a, a welcome relief from the traditional Robin Hood, yeah. where Maid Marian's just this. Yeah, I woman think it, in a yeah, funny it, hat, it, it, it was very much of its time. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to write something that was meaty, something yeah. that kids really could engage in. And I've always felt, and I just feel this so passionately. So I'm getting out of set now. I always <laughs> feel that that education ought to be about you show the kids something and say this is not the only thing that this thing can be. It doesn't have to 
just be this. You can turn it this way and it's something else. You can turn it that way, it's something else. You can stick it on your head and it's a hat, whatever. And it's up to you. You, you can transform the world. You can transform things just by thinking of them in a different way. So really subverting the Robin Hood stories was a way of me saying, you all, kids, you all know the Robin Hood stories. They just don't have to be like that. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. It's, it was, and it was just... And it was funny as well. So it didn't, and that's the, that's the problem with a lot of you know a, a, a doing something that's political. Yeah, it, it can be quite dry and boring. But the, yeah. that, primarily, that was a funny show. But you would sit down and think about it and go, oh, hey, that's that's interesting, and that's turned you know. So that's that was the idea behind yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it was fantastic. But you are you are. I, mean, I don't know if people know was. You are, you are very political. You've been very involved in the Labour Party for uh, many years. Well, it's funny because I suppose the other inspiration for, for Maid Marian was, you know, you've got this woman who is a utopian who believes that she can transform the world, but she's surrounded by complete arseheads. Yeah. That's what it was like being in a branch of the Labour Party in Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, some might say now. <laughs> Let's not get into trouble. Uh, <laughs> in the, it, how did you feel? Was it was it difficult to accept the the knighthood with the? the I mean, I presume you're a Republican. Yeah, yeah. Was, no, was, I, I, was absolutely. A question of, no, it wasn't at all. And I tell you why. I think that one of the good things that the Blair government did was. Um, they had a look uh, at the honours system and took it away from the PR department of Buckingham Palace and just like the, the leader of the opposition and the, the leader of the government. And they passed it on to a committee of between 30 and 50 people, mm. essentially the great and the good, but nevertheless um, like a vetting committee. And essentially it's up to them who they choose. Anybody can... can can nominate anybody they like yeah. to be an MBE, an OB or whatever. The, 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 the Honours Committee then look at it and say, what do we think? Do we think this person has done service to their country? What level of service do we think that they've done to their country? That, uh, that kind of thing. And I, to be honest, I just think that's cool yeah. that, that there's this bunch of people whose job it is to say, has this person done service to their country? To be awarded for, to be rewarded for that in the autumn of your years, I think is just bloody great. And I've never, I've never felt that in any way I was traducing my own politics to do it. No. And you went to Buckingham Palace. So I'm, I mean, I'm a massive uh, fan of Time Team. Yeah. So um, we might talk about that for the rest of the. Because yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I was into archaeology when I was, I did some archaeological digs when I was younger, and you know, I'm, re I'm really into history. But you did, you did one in Buckingham Palace, in the, in the gardens of Buckingham Palace. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it was called. It was called Time Team's Big Royal Dig, and. Um, I got terribly confused because it was supposed to be live and then it was as live and I never knew precisely what time it was going out. Although when we got to the actual first real live dig, I, I thought that it was going out at eight o'clock. Uh, and so round about 10 to 7, we were just rehearsing in a fairly relaxed way as we had been for the rest of the day. And I said, can you hold on for a bit? Because I've, I've, I've just got to go for a whiz. And uh, uh, the... the um, the production manager was ashen-faced and said, you can't go now, you can't. We go live in seven minutes. 
Now, the problem was that the, the portaloos were right around the other side of Buckingham Palace to where we were. They had to be hidden from the general public. And there was no way that I was going to be able to, to get a wee in time. But I'm a middle-aged man. <laughs> I, I have a prostate, which we will get onto later, I'm sure. Um, and I was just going to have a wee. I have to have a wee. So I looked around me and sloping away from me were Buckingham Palace Gardens. So I sprinted into the garden and there was this tiny little wood in the middle of the garden. So I, I, I sort of, I got round the back of a hornbeam, which has got quite a large trunk and so I knew I wouldn't be able to be seen from the, the palace. And I started to have a wee. And as I did so, there was this strange buzzing noise. And I looked up and there was a camera fixed <laughs> to the top of the trunk and it was just going... <laughs> downwards and then it just went a little bit left so that it was right focusing on me and I, I, I don't know about you Richard but I find it terribly difficult to have a wee if someone's looking I do yeah and I was struggling to to, <laughs> to wee knowing that the time was ticking away but I knew I had to finish and eventually just as I finished there was a flurry and, and, and out of the bushes came a copper with a stab jacket and a big dog. <laughs> and he came right up to me and he leant by the side of my head and he murmured, I bet everyone wishes they could do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just disappeared again. <laughs> so you pissed in the Queen's garden. I did. I did. <laughs> fantastic work. Uh, <laughs> do you remember going to Cheddar Gorge in Time Team? I don't think it was a very good one, to be honest. Oh, no, it was I don't really... I don't think you found anything. It was really weird for me, because um, those of you who know Cheddar, as obviously Richard does, do. that's where you come from, isn't it? Well, that's where I grew up, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, the, the road is a long, long slope, and there are caves off it, and a lot of them were populated uh, in the Neolithic and the Mesolithic, and, uh, and possibly even a, uh, earlier than that. The trouble is, because the road is a slope, every time it rains, it takes the mud down, and a load of it goes into the caves and we we were looking for uh, for prehistoric remains but in order to do that we had to get through something like 15 feet of essentially of slurry yeah. um, in order to get to anything and it was it was by far the most exciting uh, exhausting dig uh, that I'd, I'd ever done and I used to go home and I would neck or back to the some motel we were staying at and I would neck about half a bottle of wine and then I would just go slate straight to sleep and I think it was on the second night that I dreamt that I was wandering through a forest and it was autumn and I could hear the rain on the leaves and some of the leaves were just just coming down and and landing at my feet and then I woke up and I realised I was sleepwalking and I was pissing in my open suitcase. <laughs> that, that's my biggest yeah, <laughs> memory well, of the excavation. Cheddar does that to someone. It's yeah. nice to have two piss. Maybe all your stories just end in you pissing. <laughs> in just inappropriate places. I hope so, I really do. 
And uh, well, we'll talk about Blackadder, but I don't want to talk about the oh, usual things. I'm more interested. You nearly turned Blackadder down originally. I think it says. It says well, it yeah, I did. It was. My God, the pilot was. It was really, really lame. The <laughs> the, the pilot. Um, uh, and I'd, le I'd left school at 16. I, I, I got four O-levels. That's the sum total of my, uh, my education. Um, and I had seen what I thought of as Oxbridge comedy shows on the television since I'd been very young. The first one I remember that I saw was That Was The Week That Was. And when I saw it, it was like, you know, the first time I heard Dylan or Bruce Springsteen or John Lennon, I thought, how can he possibly have written that yet when he hasn't even met me? You know, <laughs> it seems so personal. And seeing That Was The Week That Was, it, it was it was a show unlike anything that there had ever been on television. It was, it was a show that could only have been made when a radical director general was in charge of the BBC when a Labour government was in charge. It was you know, very much that sort of early 60s uh, sort of thing. It was wonderful. And then, of course, after that, there were all the shows with, um, with John Bird and John Fortune in them and Eleanor Braun. And then later there was Python and Forty Towers. And after that, there was not the Nine O'Clock News, all of which I thought were absolutely sublime and all of which I was confident that I would have been at home in, that I could serve those people in some way. But there was never going to be any way that I could break into that charmed circle of people. They were all, you know, they were, I knew they'd all been to the same public schools, they would have all been to the same universities, they'd all appeared at, uh, in footlights at the same time. And then out of the blue I got this script for Rowan Atkinson's new comedy series. Rowan had been one of the stars of Not the Nine O'Clock News. I couldn't believe that I'd got, uh, I'd got this break. I couldn't see why anyone would have given it to me. And it was to play Rowan's comedy servants. And I looked through the script. I couldn't find this bloody part anywhere. <laughs> and in fact, there, there were only about eight, eight lines. None of them were fo funny. They were all foils for Rowan's character. And it, as I say, it was a really mediocre script. But I thought, and I really wrestled about whether I should take it or not, but I hadn't, I hadn't worked for about a month and a, you know, a half hour TV show in that day was enough, that would have paid all the, the, the debts that I'd accrued during the course of that month. And also I thought, if I could be with that people, may, those people, maybe, just maybe, they would realize that uh, you know, I was one of them yeah. kind of thing. Um, and the reason that I got it, and, and, and it was quite ironic, Richard's line when he was introducing me about me having played Titch in Big Jim and the Figaro Club, that was just an opt-out, a comedy opt-out for the BBC in the Southwest, which I'd been in one episode of about a year before. And the head of BBC comedy at the time had written me down as sort of small and vaguely humorous. And with, and with about three days to go before this Black Adder pilot was due to be made, they hadn't got anyone to play this servant. And no one wanted to play the part. Right. I'm not being falsely modest about this. If you get a script three days before a show starts you know you're not the first choice um, and they offered it to me and I mean it took a long time before it took off but you know that dream of being part of that circuit of people yeah. just happened beyond my wildest dreams and I remember on the first day of the, of the first series we were all going up north because some of you may remember that we shot a lot of it in, uh, outside Annick Castle, that first, that first series. And on the way up, John Lloyd, the producer, said to me, so what, how are you going to handle being famous then? 
And I said, don't be daft. I've got like, by now it was like 13 lines. And he said, you're the comedy servant. Everybody loves Roe. Everybody loves a comedy servant. It's going to happen to you. And I just poo-pooed him. And two years later, it, it had happened. Yeah. It was so weird. Um, it's like, you know, it's like talking about a Hollywood lucky break, isn't it? And yeah. yet that is really, truly what happened to me. <laughs> but so it was partly as well, and I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting more obsessed with this man by the podcast. It was partly because Brian Blessed was, was in the, in the cast. That was one of the things that attracted you to it. But have you got any good stories about Brian Blessed? I'm sure you must have. <laughs> one day I was having a pee. <laughs> um, I think Brian was probably the saving grace of the first Black Adder yeah, series yeah. because you know Rowan's character wasn't right and he knew it wasn't right. But the trouble with uh, with TV comedy is it's like a production line. Once you you're committed to it, you can't kind of escape. You can't rewrite it. You can't recast it. You can't change the costumes. All that's been done way down the line. So Rowan's character and Rowan has this kind of filigree, subtle humour, as I'm, I'm sure you would all agree. But he wasn't quite doing that. It was all, it was all a bit squeaky and weird in the first yeah. series. But because we had got Brian in it as his foil, Brian is so huge, his comedy is so vast, echoes everywhere, you have to dodge his comedy. Because if you <laughs> receive it in the face, your nose will bleed. <laughs> And so it made Rowan's character look far subtler than it actually was. And, and Brian is like that off stage as well as on. I, I remember uh, at lunchtime, you tended to, to go down to the, to the old Shepherd's Bush shopping centre, not the big Westfield, but the, the one on the other side of the green, which is still there. Um, and I remember I was shopping there one, one lunchtime, um, and suddenly I was grabbed round the neck and I was thrown into a headlock in this crowded shopping centre by Brian Blessed. And he kind of threw, threw me three quarters of the way to the ground and he boomed out, Officer, arrest this man! He fucks old ladies! <laughs> And with anybody else, it would have been so nasty. But because it was Brian, everybody else in the shopping centre went, oh, it's Brian, bless him. Good, I knew you would. So, uh, good. Uh, it's... That wasn't planned, by the way. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but... Uh, and I suppose, I suppose, I mean, with Baldrick it changed as well. The first series, Baldrick was wasn't the same character either, was he? Really? So it changed. No, 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 no. I mean, the first series, I think, sort of everyone acknowledges, didn't it? Wasn't quite right. Yeah. It was right enough to get a second series, luckily. But yeah, yeah. It all sort of started coming together after that. Yeah, and a lot of that. Were, uh, Rowan is a. Rowan is very self-effacing. I, 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 I bloody love him. I really sorry. I got a bit about this because I would never have I would never have had the success that I had if it hadn't been for Rowan's generosity because if you think about about the kind of role I had it actually needed close-ups 
You couldn't have done what I would have had, what I did without close-ups. And, and I had to react off Rowan, of what Rowan was saying. And often he would say a punchline, and then I would get the second laugh because I had the close-up. Most, most big stars wouldn't have allowed someone out of nowhere to get those close-ups. They wouldn't have allowed that character to develop in the way he did. But, you know, by the third series, I was getting second billing to row. Yeah. And all of that was was about his his generosity. Um, and and after the first series, one of the things that he realized was there was no point in him getting a writing credit alongside Richard. And so he said, We I will drop writing it, which again, you know, ego-wise was a very self-effacing thing to do. And they decided that they would bring Ben Elton in. And it was very inspiring because um, Ben really loved the series, but because he was such an outsider, he could see straight away what was wrong with it. Um, and one of the things that, an observation he made, which I thought was brilliant, was in order to get the Rowan's character to work, he needs to be really smart in one environment and really stupid in the other environment. So he, his whole ego can be boasted, uh, bolstered up at home and then he can go into the court thinking that he's absolutely brilliant and be absolutely exposed. And that, that is all we need, as it were, as a narrative, as energy to drive us th uh, through the series. But in order to, to make that work, he needed to have people who were much stupider than he was. And whereas in the first series, Baldrick was quite chipper in many ways, in the second series, we made him much more stupid so that Blackadder could think that he was much more clever. And we, we made him more and more stupid as the series uh, went, went on. And I'm such an idiot that it took me four series <laughs> to learn how to be stupid enough to be as stupid I was in, in, in the fourth series. And was the, has the cunning plan thing, obviously you've named your book after it, is it a bit of a, an albatross around your neck or is it... No, not at all. I, I mean, I was 38 by the time the first Blackadder series started and, and, I'd, and as we said right at the beginning, I'd been an actor since I was 13, so it was like, what's that, it's a quarter of a century of being yeah. an actor and suddenly this marvellous thing happens to me. So in a way, had Blackadder happened and then nothing else had happened to me afterwards, I would have had enormous gratitude. It was, the whole thing was so arbitrary. My, my, my biography, and I, God, I haven't plugged it at all yet. Have I? My biography, which is actually got lots more interesting stories other than the ones that <laughs> it's called No Cunning Plan just because you can't have as a freelance these kind of things just happen to you what was the question? Well is it, if, if, I'm assuming everywhere you go people are going hey have you got a cunning plan and well, this cunning and it must get on your nerves oh, no it was lovely because people like smile at you <laughs> like they've just thought it up it's, it's nearly always blokes <laughs> nearly always blokes they, 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 they middle aged blokes they come up to me and say here Tone have you got a cunning plan <laughs> and their wife is next to them and in her eyes you can see they're saying <laughs> they're thinking you cunt <laughs> 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 but then as many people say to me you can dig my garden up any time like, so it's kind of you know either or yeah yeah um, 
Very good. Uh, uh, do you like drinking? I can say that on a podcast. You can't can say, I? Can't great, you can yeah. say anything. Um, like. yeah. Your book is very open. Actually, you talk about, which I think might, get, might surprise people, you talk about uh, taking drugs when you're younger and there's uh, some sexy bits in there when you're younger. Mm. I haven't got to the when you're older bit, there might be sexy bits when you're older as well. Just wait, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we didn't do this interview before you got all the way through it. <laughs> in, in Richard's defence, uh, you didn't get the book until late this afternoon, no, did asked, you? They said they'd send me the book last week. Yeah. I've been waiting for it to arrive. Yeah. I think, well, That's why tomorrow. you got to have a publisher. <laughs> and then, and then they, they biked it to me and then I, it was two hours later I went, shall I just download it on the Kindle? I don't mind. <laughs> and then, so it finally came. So I've, re- I've read 80 pages. It's good. It's, no, it is, it's a very good book because it's, very, very, it's written very much in your voice. It's very honest, I think. Or, I mean, it is me. It's, uh, there's yeah. no ghostwriter or anything yeah. like that. I just decided I really wanted to write, yeah. write my stuff. Yeah. And I got a text, just before we came on, this is true, I got a text to say, it's number eight in the WH Smith's at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> yes! Come on! That's the big one. <laughs> That's the big one. That's what everyone's after. Uh, I should ask you some emergency questions at some point, but first I have to... Do you like drinking tea, Mr Tony Robinson? Because you should... I just... You should try uh, nothing but tea. It's loose-leaf tea and tea-related accessories. If you're interested, you can go to nbt.co.uk. Just thought I'd tell you. So, uh, it's... Uh, um, is this one of your emergency questions? <laughs> that was, yeah, it was, that was one of my emergency they, questions. They are famed, aren't they? <laughs> are they all bollocks? <laughs> they're, they're mainly bollocks. <laughs> I'll ask you a proper one. That was a, that was a little plug. Uh, if you were given the powers of a King Midas, but any, you could turn the things into anything you wanted, it doesn't have to be gold, what, everything you touch will turn into it, though. That's the worry. What would you have your stuff turn into? There you go. That's, a t- that's, that's Fox, Jim. Yeah. Have you got a cunning plan for that one, have you, Tony? <laughs> I used, to, I used his own thing against him. And this is the moment he snaps it's, and kills well, the person. No, I tell, you, I tell you what my long pause is, yeah. apart from not being very good at improvising. <laughs> my long pause is that it's about my downstairs front bit again. <laughs> is it? <laughs> when you get to a certain age and you're a bloke... Yeah. You want to wee about 19 times a day. Yeah. I would love to be able to touch my testicles and no longer want to wee. Okay. That would be so beautiful. <laughs> you know, when I'm walking up, when I'm walking up the road... <laughs> that isn't where wee comes from. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting sort of derisive sniggers from most of the audience, except from the men straight? over 50, all of whom are nodding. And it's true, as you go, as you walk up the road towards your house, when you get to my age, you suddenly know you've got to do it, you've got to do it, and it may well be before you hit the front door. But if you were King Midas, everything you touch would turn to your testicles not doing a wee. That could be... And your testicles don't do... They do a sort of a wee, Tony, but it's not... It's a, it's a golden it's, shower. It's a special kind of win. Um, <laughs> Didn't work, did it? <laughs> How are you feeling at the moment? You're right for Janita. No, embarrassed. If you need, if you need I, a, it's a crap answer. If you need a wee crap bre- question, but even worse answer. If you need, if you need a wee break, just let me know, and we can we can we can do one somewhere. <laughs> Doing that bottle, we'll empty that bottle. You can do it in front of everyone. Well, look, can I just finish? Can I finish off this whole? I promise I won't mention anything to do with downstairs, other than the fact that. I what, what people who are listening to this right. on a podcast won't know is that I have this dreadful moustache. It's the beginning of a moustache. Yeah, which I'm growing for 
what's it called? Movember. Movember, yeah. Uh, for uh, prostate awareness. Yeah. Because... Prostate cancer is such a rubbish disease. So many people die of it, and it's such a horrible, horrible death. And it's so easy to check for. And blokes of my age, by and large, just don't check for it. And all they need to do is such an easy thing to stop yourself dying this horrible death. And I can remember, like, when I was in my late teens, this whole thing happened as far as, as breast cancer was concerned. And that's, you know, that... that the number of deaths from breast cancer is tiny compared to how it used to be, but it's still frustratingly about the same for prostate cancer. And, and, and so it's worth making a complete lunatic of myself, I think, just <laughs> to, because it gives you the excuse to be able to talk about it just for a month or so. Sure, sure. And I'm sure by the end of... It's early in November, Tony. That's going to be a fine moustache. When was the last time you grew a moustache? It you... might even have been for the second Black Adder series. Oh, yes, that yeah. was my real, uh, yeah. real stuff. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, if if you anyone who goes on Twitter, they can see the link, and if they want to give any money to, to prostate awareness, I yes, would be deeply grateful. Fantastic. Uh, He's browsing through his notes while saying be absolutely the, fantastic. Well, I am because I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm an unprepared professional. Do you think that having sex with a robot counts as cheating on your partner? Because I don't. <laughs> Every time I watch Westworld, I think, no, yeah, no, it's but, fine, absolutely exactly. fine. Well, they're just robots. Go with it, yeah. The problem with, every, the problem with every drama that tackles the issue is that the robots always gain sentience. But in reality, they won't gain sentience, so it's fine. Do we know that for certain? <laughs> I do know that for certain. They're just, they're just machines. Yeah. It's an elaborate wank, Tony Ro Sir Tony Robbins. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> I nearly forgot to call Sorry, him Sir Tony Robbins. Were you calling me that? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it should be it'll be all right, but my wife disagrees with me. She wouldn't let me have sex with She would divorce me if I had sex with a sexy robot. It doesn't even have to be a sexy robot. Would she rather you had sex with a sexy robot than a sexy person? Well, I think probably, but I think she would count it as almost the same thing, which I really... That's is. so unfair, Yeah, that it? is unfair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you just like get a yellow card rather than the red one? For <laughs> no, that's that? what I think should, yeah. there should be. I mean, I've been, you know, been with for nine years. I mean, what, what does she want? <laughs> <laughs> Probably more than she's currently receiving. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, philosophical question. Um, so, Tony Robinson, have you ever tried to suck your own cock? <laughs> You're the first sir I've asked this question to. I'm a man! <laughs> what kind of question is that? Good. Would you have told Prince William that if he'd asked you when he was nine? Yeah, he is so... Actually, yeah, you're right, I'm not the greatest fan of the monarchy by any means, but what was so sweet about him was he was really chatty. It was just... And he had just had that look in his eyes about this is, like, this is all a bit ironic, really, and you know it's ironic, <laughs> and I know it's ironic, which was sweet. And he said that he was a big fan of Blackadder, yeah. and I said, this is all, you know, during the blah, 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 blah of it. Um, and I said, would you ever be in it? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, if we're ever we do another one, can like 
our people get in touch with your people. So I'm being knighted and doing the most effective casting session <laughs> I've ever done. See, I'm terrible at schmoozing. That's why I keep, I keep meeting people and then not asking them to do the show. And you were being knighted and asking Prince William to be, be in, in my black, show. To yeah. be in Blackadder. Uh, which I'm presuming there won't be any more Blackadder, though. Do I didn't know. I, I, I would probably do it. I think on his good days, I think Rowan would. The, the, the problem is, and it's, it's quite a good argument, actually, we went out on such a high and people would kind of expect the series to go on from there. But the reality is, however good it was, even if objectively it was twice as good as Blackadder goes forth, people's sensibilities wouldn't be in the same place anymore. They would have, they've moved on by 25 years or yeah. however long it is, so they wouldn't receive it in the same way. So they would be like, oh, it's not as good as it was in the old days. Yeah. And, and uh, I think some people think we're on a hiding to nothing. I think it's true. I mean, but they did. The BBC have obviously just done this big season of repeating and reimagining re old sitcoms. I mean, I don't... Yeah. It, it, it wouldn't work without you guys in it, though, would it? I don't think that would be... The I've son of no Black idea. Adder, I the son of Baldrick. The, <laughs> the, idea which I, the idea which I think we could do, and this is only the beginning of an idea, so I think you'd, you'd all have to, to develop it in your own imaginations. Ryan once said to me, wouldn't it be great if we could take over the royal tournament? that we could do one which was about this huge colossal it would be live and it would be about this huge colossal battle and we'd see all the guns moving around and there'd be screens so we could do the acting as well and people would come in and have a royal tournament and a live Blackadder experience at the same time and I know that's kind of not quite right but something as way out as that yeah, yeah. I think probably could work in the best of all possible worlds. Yeah. Or else we could go to Australia, tour it for uh, <laughs> six weeks and all earn a million quidditch. <laughs> Good idea. Uh, that could work. Um, so, I, I, what, did you, you had a run-in with Michael Gove. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan of Michael Gove's, even on the scale of, of my lack of fandom of most Tories. He comes glow That's down. He, well, he's a funny guy, really, because I think there is part of him that is very, very smart. But like some of those really smart, geeky boys at school, he's also a complete wanker. <laughs> and, and he... Well, you've seen it time and time again. He sort of... He destroys himself in the midst of his own cleverness. And there was a time when he was Secretary of State for Education when he said that he didn't think that shows like Blackadder or films like Oh What a Lovely War should be used by teachers who were teaching children the history of the First World War. Apart from anything else, he said he thought they were offensive to the, uh, the British officer class in the First World War and made them all seem like idiots. There are so many reasons why that was a really faulty observation. One of them, I think, is that it shows no understanding at all of how teachers use something like Blackadder when they're teaching the First World War. It's like, you know, if, if you offer the kids a First World War poet, the kids aren't going to come away from the class thinking that the whole First World War rhymed. <laughs> 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 Do 
they will understand that it is a means of engagement. And likewise, they would do exactly the same uh, as far as the uh, Blackadder is concerned. And also as far as the officer class is concerned. The fact is that the vast majority of the officer class modelled their idea of war uh, on the Boer Wars, the South African Wars in the late 19th century. They weren't, they weren't modern. They were foolish. They were pr profoundly class-bound and didn't have the flexibility, for instance, that the Australian of uh, officer class in the, in the First World War had, who by and large were pretty damn good because they didn't have that same class-bound view. So it, I think as far as our sensibility is concerned, a lot of them were complete dunderheads. Um, and for, for the Secretary of State of Education to miss all of that, I just thought was really foolish. And so I went on television a number of times and explained how foolish I thought <laughs> that he was. And as you can see, his career crashed and burned, and he's now a backbencher. <laughs> if people had only listened to you at the time. I, I, think, uh, I think him saying, we, we've, we've all had enough of experts, I think that's the turning point in the history of Western civilization. I think that's the point you can go, that's where it all started to fuck up. When Michael Gove said that, that was the moment there was no way back when we've decided that experts, we didn't, mustn't listen to experts, which is what politics has sort of become yeah we can tell we can now just lie we can just ignore we can ignore, ignore evidence but it's become like a western disease hasn't it i, I, I don't know if i'm I, I don't know if i'm allowed to say this because i don't know how much this this broadcast depends on time but actually as far as this audience are concerned um at this moment we're 36 hours away from america making what could be the most terrible decision any group of people have made in a democracy ever. Mm -hmm. And this, exactly that same attitude is coming out, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, don't trust experts. I, I tweeted this morning that at the moment, Hillary seems to have a 1.5% lead in the polls, but given how profoundly fallible polls have turned out in the last two years uh that makes it even more terrifying the fact that she's in the lead makes me even more scared because polls are always wrong and just before i when i was in the cab coming here this evening i saw that mark gatiss had, had uh tweeted almost exactly the same thing yeah. because he's a plagiarist but <laughs> Uh, but I, I suspect that some of you have got that same feeling of dreadful nervousness. This man who just who won't listen to experts yeah. could be king of the world in 36 hours. Thinks that global warming is a Chinese hoax. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of ama it's amazing the way it works and the way the way it actually convinces people and you know the way that people can, that, you know he's I don't I, with those politicians those super rich guys you know Farage as well they're these guys who come from a privileged background. And, and are trying to go with their own agenda, and yet somehow they convince people that they're men of the people and that they're the ones you should... You know, the, the, a billionaire in America is trying to convince American people he has their interests at heart and he's, he's not like the other ones. It's sort of amazing that it works. I mean, it's why fascism worked in the 1930s. It's the same basic impetus, isn't it? I mean, Absolutely, yeah. And, 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 and I think a lot of, a lot of these kind of jack the lad popularists they actually work on it much more than you think yeah. there was a documentary about hitler that was on last year which was a quite phenomenal and it showed you know all that kind of strutting around charlie chaplin stuff yeah. he worked on that 
that was a that was a character he developed for himself because he knew how much it would link in with with a yearning that there was in um, in Germany at the time, and I suspect an awful lot of that is true of Trump. I can't believe that he's quite as dumb as oh, there's a, oh, a no. smart dumbness, scary smart dumbness about him, which is terrifying. Well, I, I you know I think Chaplin uh, and Hitler. I, I, I mean, I've been interested in both those characters, but I think he recognised a bit of himself in Hitler in that he channeled his dictatorial uh, things into creativity rather than you know but he was quite yeah. a, he was quite a tyrannical figure within what he did but it's interesting i think a lot of the dictators and a lot of those populist politicians are more like comedians than like politicians yeah, so yeah, i think absolutely. with trump you know you're sort of laughing at them to begin with but and and with farage i mean farage is basically the pub landlord He's taken all the he's taken all the bits of Almo the Pablo landlord in the way that I think Hitler took a lot of the bits of Chaplin I think deliberately because it makes you like you think oh I've got the pint I've got the thing we like yeah. Al Murray when he does that so we're going to like you even though you're a horrible disgusting little vile creature yeah and, and, and quite often the, these people do have uh, an, an awful lot of charm about them I mean I, I've I've read a lot of of. Uh, of, of stuff online about people who say that they met Trump ten or fifteen years ago and he was very charming. I was once stuck uh, tr uh, trying to get on Eurostar um, in the car in front of Nigel Farage, who, <laughs> who it turns out is A, a big uh, Time Team fan, right. and secondly knows predictably an awful lot about the Western Front. Yeah. And we, we agreed not to talk politics and talked about everything else for half an hour. Right. And he was a very charming bloke. Sure. He really was. And you could, you could see why in meetings, however scary a lot of his beliefs are, he was, able, he was and is able to persuade people just through the force of his own charm. Well, he's the most successful UK politician in this generation. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the ter terrifying thing about it. He's got what he wanted. He didn't get into... He got into the European Parliament, but he didn't get into the... You know, he got, they had one MP, and he's managed to achieve probably everything that he wanted to achieve. So he's, that's, you know, well done, Nigel Farage. <laughs> <laughs> you must feel very happy with yourself. Uh, and... Um, well, let's... let's we, we haven't got too much longer, but uh, let's, uh, let's see what else we can get in. Um, uh, you were in The Young Ones... Oh, there's a yeah. There's a really lovely episode called yeah. called Bambi. I yeah, think it was called Bambi. Bambi. It's and it's got and both Mel and Griff uh, were in it, yeah. and uh, Emma Thompson was in it, and Ben and Stephen Fry, Fry Hugh yeah. Laurie was in it, and um, uh, Robbie Coltrane was in it. Uh, uh, Robbie played somebody called, for reasons I have no idea, Doctor Not the Nine, nine O'clock News, and I played. Doctor, somebody else, right. and um, I, came, I came to him, and uh, people will probably remember this much better than me. I said, "Doctor, doctor, there's a man outside with a, a, a terrible disease. He looks like an elephant. Can you, you know, we're dressed as Victorians? Uh, can you imagine a more heinous, hideous thing to happen to a man than that he should have the visage of an elephant?" and um, and I open the door, and in comes a baby elephant. <laughs> um, and in rehearsals, that was absolutely fine, except that the damned elephant wouldn't come through the door. We couldn't persuade him, however much we tried. So the trainer, in the end, put a great big box of fruit and veg on the other side of the set, so he would know to come on, and then he would get rewarded. So on the actual, when we actually did it on the night, I said this line, the elephant 
came in. But of course, foolishly, the trainer had put it on the far side of the set. So the elephant pissed all the way through the set, <laughs> took out the set on the far side of the stage. <laughs> Everyone fleed like mad until he found his, uh, uh, his oranges and his carrots and whatever it was in his box. And so we had to to do it again. I'd always hoped that they would find a way of keeping that out take in yeah. because I just thought it, was so, it would have been such a great thing to have seen like in Amy Schumer, you know, yeah. the great thing to have seen oh, yeah. in the credits, yeah. but uh, they didn't keep it in. You've got an incredibly good memory about, because I'm, I'm picking things out at random and I've, I've had, you know, people of my age and I'm very young uh, and younger, you know, and you go, do you remember this thing? Hans Chuan is my age. Go, do you remember this? Go, no, I don't remember what that is. You've, and I, everything I ask you, you've got like a very clear recall of, which is very impressive. Because you've done so many things over the years. So to, is it partly yeah. because you've written your biography and thought about all these things? Or is it because I think it's just... mainly that. I, I mean, I, I've just been around an awful long time, so I've been interviewed an awful lot. Writing that book, the book took me 11 months, and for 11 months, whereas in previous years I'd always been out making telly or, you know, on the road or whatever, for 11 months I just sort of sat in my room thinking about stuff out of my life and formulating it so it would tend to, to end in some kind of payoff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I just, I think an awful lot of my life I've kind of reinterpreted into those kind of narrative arcs. Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, it's kind of fun for me. It's much more fun for me to tell them when I know vaguely how they're going to go to it. But it sounds like you had a lot of fun when you were young, and so like, a lot of people would have, you know, fried something up there and not be able to... Oh, I remember. fried an awful lot up there. But <laughs> between about 1965 and 1975, I do remember very little. <laughs> very little. Um, and friends have sort of helped to fill that in, <laughs> charitable friends. But um, writing about when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, I really found very easy, because I, I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but you kind of, remembering that time, it's sort of you, but it's you through the other end of a telescope. And, and you, can, you can feel quite, whatever the mess-ups in your life were, you can remember them, but be quite affectionate about that person. And so writing about me at that age, I found really very easy and I was able to be objective about. F for me, from about 40 on, when I, the age of 40 on, being the person who I probably by and large still am, that was much more difficult because you, you have to be close enough to the events to be able to write about it honestly and with the emotion that those events generated, but far enough away to continue to be objective about it. And getting that balance right was a really intriguing but difficult writing task. Yeah. Oh, well, no gag in that one, but no, I find no, it interesting. interesting. There's no need to be a gag. It's very interesting. Uh, I know. It's, it's, it's sort of, well, it's such, a, it's such a full life, and it's, you know, I think people will be surprised to find out that you're in your 70s. I mean, that's kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, 70 on my last birthday, yeah. yeah. Which is amazing, but it's but you've been you know, working all that time since you. Any other show, I'd get a bloody round for that. <laughs> Thank you. Well done for staying alive. Get to the, please get to the end of the year. Uh, so. <laughs> That'd be you'll feel shit if I don't. <laughs> I mean, well, I know you're not a fucking knight again if it comes under Sir Tony Robinson from Blackadder and Tales of Fat Loops Garden. Sadly, is still alive today. <laughs> That's the only way it goes. So it's uh, uh, well. Look, it's been really lovely to talk to you. There's so many things we could talk about, and 
I, I'm just wondering whether I've missed anything massive. Uh, I mean, put, there's there's great stories. There's still great stories about Judy Garland, Lisa Minnelli, um, Liza Minnelli, uh, John John Wayne pushing you in a dock. Got to read the book though. Let's 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 save some stuff for the book. Uh, you had imaginary friends when you were a child. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you? I'm quite fascinated by imaginary friends. I don't think I did have imaginary friends. Oh yeah, yeah. I was an only child. Yeah, and, and yeah, I can remember. I mean, I played myself at snooker and Sabutio, but that doesn't <laughs> I, I knew it was me. Yeah, yeah all the, all, my imaginary friends were always around. They were yeah. always with me, and we were always, you know, fighting wars together and stuff. Yeah, what, yeah. what form did they take? They were humans. <laughs> I feel really embarrassed about it. I don't want, I'm not going to tell you their names or anything. <laughs> no, I, my, I mean, you know, a man's imaginary friends are his imaginary <laughs> I friends. I think that's, they're, well, that's they're Between him and himself. You I've know. gone too far. I can sense... <laughs> Overstepped a mark that, you know, sucking your own cock was fine, but this this Stephen Merchant all over again. It was going so well. <laughs> and you, what's coming up? You're doing eight, are you doing more ancient tracks? Is that the, is uh, yeah, yes, at the moment I'm doing a series called Tony Robinson's Ancient Tracks, and everyone on Twitter said, what is it about Keith Richard? <laughs> <laughs> It's it is about it's like the Pilgrim's Way yeah. and the the Foss Way and all those kind of tracks. I've, I've I've actually walked coast to coast uh, and uh, over six episodes and uh, that goes out on Channel Five uh, next year. Oh and great, cool, good. So there's yeah there's still stuff out there, hoping that there's another series of Man Down. But oh yeah, Man Down, which you were awesome in. Thank you. Uh, will, you be, will that character be returning? So you were oh, I, I mean I don't I think to no, give too no, much away. I, well, I, Greg's attitude is uh, Greg and I get on really well yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, but, uh, and, and his attitude is I would really really like you to be in it I don't want to mess up the whole narrative by sort of like promising you something that I can't do but for the moment know that I would like you to be in oh, it but great. let's see what happens it's a great it's a fantastic show it's one of my one of the, there's, a, there's a lot of really good sitcoms coming out at the moment I think that's it's, it's a, young ones for for 40 something it is really, yeah, yeah. It? yeah and you and, uh, your character in is really nasty which must have been so much fun to play so I mean I haven't really played a very nasty character no. I guess since the sheriff in in, in Maid Marian and Her Merry Men yeah. it's such a it's such a release and a relief because most of the characters characters that I've been asked to play. I suppose mainly because A, I've got big eyes and B, I'm short, uh, have been charming or funny or trying to be like the audience in my documentaries. So people assume by and large that I'm sort of charming in my life. But yeah. like everyone and particularly every performer, I'm, you know, self-obsessed, <laughs> nasty, <laughs> Bigot. Yeah. Well, it's, it's oh, terrifying well, seeing you play that character. Yeah, and, and it was it was, it was lovely to be able to just be <laughs> just to say just to look at look at Greg and say, "What are you doing here, you giraffe full of shit?" <laughs> <laughs> it's so just just such pleasure to be yeah. able to say he's, he's a he's a very very fine writer. He is. He is the, the Rick Mail of our days, I think, and it's yeah. no, no coincidence that he should have asked Rick to be in that first series yeah. as his dad. I mean, what a giveaway that is. You know. <laughs> oh, terrific. Well, I, I really hope you are in those because it was terrifying uh, and amazing, uh, and that's great. But, uh, yeah, and, well, I hope you do carry on doing acting and your d documentary and historical stuff, which I love. So, uh, and thanks so much for coming on this. Read Tony... Book Sir Tony Robinson's. You should put Sir on the front. Uh, <laughs> no cunning plan. That's the that's the book. Yeah. And the charity is 
prostate awareness. Yeah, fantastic. For the month of November. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Tony Robinson. <laughs> you have been listening to Richard Herring's Left Square Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Tony Robinson, from off of Maid Marian. Music is by Pest. Thank you to everyone at the Left Square Theatre. Thank you to my friend George and Craig and Kinga for doing the proper film version of it. You're not watching. Thank you to everyone at Go Fast Stripe and everyone at the British Comedy Guide, especially Orange Mark. Thank you to my producer, Ben Walker. And thank you also to me. I am in it. It's a Sky Potato Fuzz and Go Faster Strike production. If you like this, I'm on tour very soon. Go to richherring.com slash the underscore best slash tour and you can see all of my gigs or just richherring.com slash gigs. See if I'm coming near to you and buy a ticket. I'll be in London in February uh, and some other places in February and then all over the place until May 2017, which is going to be a good year. I can feel it in my bones.